Everybody and welcome to True Stories of Tinseltown. And I'm so happy to have you listening to us again. And I have the lovely and charming and wonderful author John DeLeo on again. I think ten or twelve times. And I think you are my earliest. I think we did a ten once, but I think you're the earliest. This is the earliest I've done a podcast. So you, hmm. you've broken another record, John. You have broken <laughs> another record. That's my goal. Yes. Keep breaking records. It's yes. amazing. So what we're going to do today is talk about um, John's book, which I loved, of course. There are no small parts, 100 outstanding film performances with screen times of 10 minutes or less. And John had his, your stopwatch, <laughs> didn't you? What did I have? I'm sorry. You had your stopwatch. Oh, I had my stopwatch, yes, uh, to make sure everybody was either right at 10. I mean, certainly many of them are well under, like, two or three-minute performances. So I still had my stopwatch out so I could tell you not only who the actor is, what the role is, what the movie is, and you know, but give you the running time of each one so you could, when it's a performance you remember, you could say, really? It was only three minutes? But why do I remember her so much? And then some, like I said, uh, if they went over the 10-minute mark, uh, they just didn't make it in because as great as they are, it's a, oh, then it's in a different category. What if it went so, 10 minutes and two seconds? Well, I, no, I think there was always a way to shave two seconds off, you know, when the camera went on somebody else, you know. So if it was, yeah, probably I could, uh, yeah, within a few seconds I could I could do it. But uh, I'm talking about if it went to obviously 11 or 12, then it was in a different category, yeah. Yes. So you would be able to say, okay, I'm going to do it, even if it's 10 minutes. 10 minutes and two seconds. I find that really yes. good. <laughs> That's very much a relief to me because I'm sure oh, there are a few. <laughs> yes. I'm going to do it really quick because John and I are like, you know, we're like our people because John has to hold his phone. <laughs> uh-huh. You should get a microphone and you don't yeah. have to hold your phone. Just put it through. A lot of people do that. First person, we are talking about... Uh, our lovely number one, and she is number one in your book as well. Mm-hmm. Tell us. Elsa Lanchester in Bride of Frankenstein. Now, of course, um, the book moves chronologically from 1935 to 2019, sort of evenly spaced. Um, the 100 performances, rather, are evenly spaced within that time frame. And I, I wanted to start with a biggie, you know, some a, a movie and a performance that everyone or almost everyone remembers or yes. is aware of. Yeah, so that was like, you can't, you can't do bigger than that. And in fact, that the title role is that tiny. And in fact, in her case, it's even more interesting because she plays two roles right. and two roles added up still equals seven minutes. So she's Mary Shelley in the prologue for three minutes. Mm-hmm. And she's only the bride in the final four minutes of the movie. 
So that really talks, it really speaks to what the book is about, how we can be talking about this person, how she's the, basically uh, the idea that's running through the movie, the creation of the bride. She's and she only, Yeah, she only lasts for four minutes. It's not only the role, but the character's whole lifespan is four minutes. Um, and she's basically a woman who's also a newborn at the same time. And so, uh, her creation of the sounds and the, the physical, the jerkiness and all yes. that, it's absolutely mesmerizing, so wildly inventive. And of course, we're still <laughs> talking about her all these years later. Yes, and iconic. it made such an impression. It is true. I know we th- that word is thrown around so easily is. in this, this day is. and age, but this truly is iconic, legendary whichever big word you want to call it. And so it, it sort of defined her sort of eccentric persona, even though she never played something quite like that again. No. But I always love her in movies because she has that sort of dotty, eccentric oh, yeah. quality that can be used be, yes. for comedy or drama. Or She's always so interesting. And there, she played a lot of small roles. And I could have picked other ones for her. But this, of course, is the one. You know yeah. what I think about Elsa is that she, uh, her roles are quirky, whatever, but she was never yeah. over the top. You know what I yeah. mean? You yeah. could believe her. It wasn't like sort yeah. of overmannered or something like that. Yeah. And I heard she was really bohemian, which makes me really like her, too. Yeah. She was like a really bohemian chick. So Yes, you could easily picture that. We could hang. We could hang, yeah. man. Snap, snap. So that would be a lot of fun. So number two, and this... This number two is basically the reason you got the idea for this book by this person. Yeah, this I guess this idea was kicking around in my subconscious for a while. And I think uh, and I believe this is the second one in the book right after Elsa is uh, John Ray in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. 1936. Now, of course, this is a very famous movie, Frank Capra, Gary Cooper, Gene Arthur, but the person I'm writing about is virtually unknown. Even his face, he's not one of those guys you see in hundreds of movies. You see, he shows up occasionally in something from the 30s, but he's not one of those faces like, oh, you know, that guy, that guy from that thing. He he's, doesn't even get into that category. That guy but, from the thing? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, about halfway into the movie, which up to that point has been a fish-out-of-water comedy right. of the hick uh, up against the city slickers who are taking wild advantage of him uh, after he's inherited uh, $20 million. Uh, but then John Ray, this character who doesn't even have a name, he breaks into the mansion. He's a, a basically a starving farmer trying to support his family who confronts Gary Cooper like uh, with basically saying, are you kidding me with this uh, frivolous lifestyle you're leading and feeding uh, donuts to a horse while people are starving out there? And uh, it's a scary confrontation in the sense that he pulls a gun and then he relents and collapses and apologizes. And Gary Cooper, instead of having him arrested, feeds him and it changes Mr. Deed's whole outlook on the situation. And he decides to give all his money away to do some good. So this one character who's in it for four and a half minutes not only delivers an incredibly moving performance that makes me cry every single time I see it, even though we don't even know who he is, and yet he's able to make <laughs> me cry. Yeah. yeah, he's able to make me cry by the 
intensity and the personal nature of the way he speaks those words, um, his character alters the entire course of this movie that we've been loving. And we we continue to love, but it just becomes a different story. It becomes the main story, and it's, it's triggered by this tiny little role. This is uh, the screen Robert, uh, the screenwriter Robert Riskin's Riskin, favorite yeah. favorite. I had his daughter on. She was fa- oh, oh she's yeah. wonderful. Favorite A's daughter and Robert Riskin. Yeah. This was his favorite. It's a good interview. This is his uh, favorite movie that he yeah. wrote, and he had a dog named Mister Deeds. That's just a, oh. a tidbit from True Stories of Tennessee. Yeah. But uh, also, you know, with this, what I loved and. You can look it up, everybody. It's on YouTube. The scene is not there, but just skip ahead, and you'll find him. And he just finds out that Gene Arthur is, is a really a reporter. He's really at the end of it. He's like, you people are all scum. I hate. And he's saying he thinks this guy's another scum, you know, yeah, and he sees right. that that's not the case. And right. his, the guy is mad and angry, has the gun pointed at him. Then he's defeated. And apologetic, and he, and then Dietz takes him in and eats, and he asks if he can bring food home for his family. And like I said before about Gary Cooper, in this scene, he doesn't really, he just kind of nods and looks at him or whatever, and he adds to that scene so much um, with understanding, with kindness, with, you know, everything. And this guy goes through a range of emotions in five yeah. minutes that it's like, wowza. Yeah. Well, yeah, when he sits down to eat, of course, he's happy because he's hungry. And then it is that moment of, oh, my goodness, my family. And he looks up so sort of he's a little worried he's going to say no kind of thing. But can I take some of this stuff home? Um, and then is relieved and is able to continue to eat once uh, Gary Cooper says, of course. But, of course, while you, as you said, while John Ray is eating, Gary Cooper is going through the transition of deciding what he's going to do just by taking in this whole sequence with John Ray. And so, yeah, Cooper is awfully good at watching the wheels turn. Uh, you know, we can see his wheels turn, rather. <laughs> yes, and it's, it's, a, it's a really nice movie and he did a wonderful performance so i agree a hundred percent great next person we're talking about who i adore and i make everybody who is not a classic movie fan watch a couple movies like uh rebecca and of course sunset boulevard they love them and um certain movies and everybody remembers her when i say want to watch Remember Rebecca? Oh, fetch me chocolate. They remember Florence Bates all the time. <laughs> yes. She's so yeah. great. And you yeah. said that was that wasn't her first. Was that her first film? Yeah, that's her first film. Um, she had done some theater, and uh, in uh, I believe in the Pasadena Playhouse was her was her kickoff place. But she had a bunch of careers before she was an actress. She's a really interesting character to yes. read about. Yeah, she did all kinds of things. She was a lawyer, um, right? One of the Yeah, she she ran she had her own stores and stuff. I mean I, I deal with it in the in the opening of that of that chapter about her, but I remember being surprised that like the past some of these people that we only know as older people in the movies uh, but there were other lives. Most of them are, were on the stage, but not all of them. They had other 
They had other lives that's that were not uh, theatrical. Yeah, and, which makes uh, her very interesting. Yeah, she's an interesting one. And, of course, she's so um, memorable in the 1940s movies as a, it's usually a, a tough Snob. dame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, of course, the character in Rebecca, Mrs. Van Hopper, set the tone for her whole career of this kind of pushy, in this case, nouveau riche a woman who thinks she's something, but nobody else seems to think so. She's clearly kind of, yeah, I said that kind of new money thing that wants to throw her weight around and um, isn't particularly charming. Uh, but she's enamored with um, Laurence Olivier because he's a big deal. And she doesn't treat her paid companion, Joan Fontaine, particularly well, but of course is shocked when Joan Fontaine finds herself engaged to Laurence Olivier. And so she has an interesting arc, too, of... Uh, finally seeing her little paid companion as somebody else. And that final confrontation scene is very interesting. It's sort of yes. like woman to woman, this is the deal. He doesn't really love you, blah, blah, blah. Good luck, honey, that yeah, kind exactly. of thing. Yeah, exactly. Good luck, honey. Um, but, but what's great about her is that she's one of those um, – sort of not likable characters that you absolutely love. Yes, it's a riot. She's so funny and she's so sometimes completely delusional about how she's coming across. So she makes us laugh every time we see her. Yes. So uh, I wouldn't say you, a woman you love to hate because we don't hate her. But no, I'm just saying, but she's just... She's, yeah. Yeah. And it, we kind of miss her because she's only in that she's in her eight minutes or in the first 15 minutes. And then she's never seen again because her part, you know, has nothing to do with the main plot of the of the story, which is Joan Fontaine being at Mandalay. Um, but you never forget her. It's not like the movie's gone on so long. You forgot who she was. Oh, no. She's, if you ever mentioned Mrs. Van Hopper, everyone her. remembers her. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to talk about that wonderful scene where she's in bed and she has a cold. Yeah. <laughs> And you write about it like she's, you know, plucking her beard and mustache. She takes the medicine and fetch stuff, fetch me a chocolate. And then she yeah. like smoking with her stubby fingers, and then she puts it out in her probably hundred dollar jar of cold cream. Yeah, and, that's a great moment. Yeah. That's a great and then when she I love the one when she's so delusional, you know, because uh Maxime Dwinter, who is uh, Lawrence Olivier, he gets up. Perhaps you, uh, he who travels alone travels fat, the fastest. Yeah, or I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Find it. Yeah, and she said, what you make of that? What did he mean by that? Yeah. She said, there was once a young artist who used to flee, when I, run away whenever he saw me. I suppose he was in love with me and too afraid to t- yes. show it. So that's yes. like deluge, deluge, deluge to the Yeah, end. exactly. She can work anything around. Yeah, she <laughs> so, had pretty so high self-esteem. She looks good in the story, yeah. <laughs> yeah she had, you know, she had pretty high self-esteem there. Um, yeah. <laughs> Mrs. Mrs. Uh, whatever your name is. Yeah. And um, so the next one we're going to do is an actress I really like. I want to do a podcast about her, and she is always good, always believable, um, in anything she's done, and that's Gladys George in The Hard mm-hmm. Way. Yeah, that's a really great performance. And it's in in Florence Bates's case, she's got that chunk that's basically in the prologue of the story. In Gladys George's case, I guess similar to what John Ray does, his her chunk is at the like, center of the movie, right. and her seven and a half minutes are continuous. So she appears, she plays her whole role, and then she's gone forever. But it's like it's like within seven minutes, it's like the portrait of the downfall of a star <laughs> right before your eyes. 
and she's extraordinary. Um, obviously past her prime, obviously with a drinking problem, obviously in a show that she would not have been uh, low enough to be in just a few years ago, but she's sort of on the skid. She's got one number in this, uh, I guess it's a review, and she's very touchy about her slide from grace. And um, it, it's it's heartbreaking because well then of course Ida Lupino gets her really drunk so she'll get fired. Very so evil. Ida's Ida's kid sister can get the role, but we see Gladys George singing her number, uh, rehearsing it on stage, and we see her in the bar and then back at the rehearsal where she falls apart completely. And um, like I said, you know we've seen so many movies about you know, aging stars, people in decline, nervous breakdowns. And within seven and a half minutes, you get everything you get in all those full length stories in the, in this, this little capsule performance. And, uh, she's magnificent. She yeah. really is. And she's always good. She, she breaks your heart. She's like that yeah. tough dame with that bleach blonde hair, the face yeah. that's been lived in, but heart of gold kind of lady. And you really, yeah. it's not someone you want to hit. You know what I mean? She's been hit yeah. enough. And yeah. The Hard Way is not the greatest movie. Um, no. It's interesting. And as we yeah. both say, we can't, st- <laughs> you don't like um, Dennis Morgan, John. period. Or Joan Leslie, actually. I'm not crazy oh, about her either. either. Well, she was supposed to be, all of a sudden she breaks out and she's this magnetic Broadway performer and everybody's knocking on her door and coming to her, yeah. her place. Well, she has no fizzle. She's she's fizzless. Well, what's so funny is that when after Gladys George is gone and we see Joan Leslie do the same song in the actual show with you know a chorus of people behind her and all that, and I think it was so much better when Gladys George was alone on stage croaking it out while she was smoking. <laughs> it was because this one she's doing like you couldn't pick out that she was a star right. of this bro- I agree. Yeah. and she was just like one of these people and then yeah. okay she must be the star because she does a couple of yeah. cartwheels Dennis yeah. Morgan is in it and he sings and we both agree I mean I love Ida Lupino she's one of my favorites and Me it's too. a nice juicy part for her and I know we, we both like Jack, Jack Carson in this movie he is he, wonderful he gets to be vulnerable in a way he rarely got to be he gets you um, Gets, yeah, yeah, so there's some really good performances, and like I said, some casting we would sort of argue with, but uh, but it's you know it's that one of those really smoothly made Warner Brothers melodramas of the '40s, uh, so it's very entertaining, and 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 for the seven and a half minutes of Gladys George, it's quite brilliant actually. Yeah, she's fabulous, and I want to do a podcast on her. And mm-hmm. next, we're going to Roman. Bonin. <laughs> we both yes. don't know if that's how we pronounce his that name. That sounds good enough to me, it does yes. Sound, or Bonin, Roman Bonin or whatever. Bonin, yeah. Uh, best years of our lives. Yes. Now, everyone listening, I'm sure, knows the best years of our lives from 1946. Such a great film and holds up beautifully. Oh, so, and it's three okay. hours. So here is Roman Bonin, who's in five minutes of the three hours. And he's another one who makes me cry every single yes. time. He plays the father of returning serviceman Dana Andrews. And uh, we see him uh, when Dana comes home. And and. Roman is so gentle and lovely as a father who obviously loves his son a lot, but he's a very inexpressive man in terms of words. He doesn't have the words. And also an alcoholic. 
And also an and, Yeah, and, really and he's living in a shack with his second wife, who played by Gladys George, who's wonderful. also wonderful in this movie, a really loving stepmother. And Dane Andrews has a great, warm relationship with them. But they're obviously not people who express themselves well, no. particularly, I mean, the father and the son relationship. But the key moment comes way later when uh, Dane Andrews decides to give up on the town and try to start over somewhere else because his uh, wife, Virginia Mayo, that he hardly knew has been faithless and all of that. And... Um, after he leaves, uh, Roman Bonin fi- uh, really sits down to read the citation of Dana Andrews' decoration for his service. And just to watch him sit down and read this letter about how brave and extraordinary his son is, is so moving. And he does it in such an understated way. And you can just feel uh, him think, I. I can't believe this is my son, is this person, the pride, the joy. And again, it's all sort of within. And he calls Gladys George and you've got to hear this. Um, It's just it's just so beautiful. And um, it's such a tribute to what a fine actor he was. He's in a number of things in the 40s. Um, He's also rather good as Jennifer Jones's father in the song of Bernadette. Again, just so believable. Uh, as these people without um, without uh, any kind of look at me quality. Yeah, just, no flashy he just kind digs of digs right in right. and goes there and he's just honest, genuine, authentic. Yeah, you totally buy it. You know, it, it's a beautiful, beautiful scene among many really good scenes, but yeah. he owns that. And I, you know, like you said, Gladys George, what can we say? She was fabulous on that. And of course, yeah. wrong side of the tracks. And we actually hear yes. the train, of course. Yeah, <laughs> really. It's so, a shack. Yeah, it's yes. a shack. Yeah. So who's first? Okay, I'm trying to think of, oh, Thelma Ritter. She's next. Thelma Ritter. Well, Thelma Ritter in um, Miracle on 34th Street is interesting, mostly because, well, first of all, it's her film debut. The size of the role is two minutes. She basically has two (laughs) scenes, one with Santa Claus and one with the store manager. And what's so great when someone makes their film debut, well, she's lucky that it turned out to be a movie that everybody saw, so everybody noticed her. But the the role, even though it's two minutes long, defines the next 20 years of her career, you know, the remainder of her life. Uh, it's that, you know, very New York, very wisecracking. Very, she looks down like uh, down to earth. Yeah. Uh, you know, exactly. Regularly no nonsense, chosen. Yeah, no nonsense. Yeah. Tells it like it is. So first, she kind of, in a not not wouldn't say tells off Santa, but, but it was like, don't promise the kid things I can't get. And then when he says, oh, you can get it somewhere else, and she's she has a complete transformation. Like I can't believe a store was actually putting me above sales to help me get the gift I need from my son that I that Santa just promised him. And then she goes to thank the store manager for their new policy of putting. Uh, putting Christmas ahead of profits. And so she has two scenes that are different from each other, but she's like, again, I'll go back to that word of authentic where she is a lady. She says she doesn't usually come into Macy. So you figure she's a Brooklyn lady, which she was. So it's like, you got the whole character in two minutes. You know this woman. Yeah, <laughs> you she know she's t- going to go home and tell all her friends about what happened at Macy's, and she'll be back. And, and she uh, looks so exhausted. She looks like she's really exactly. an exhausted shopper. Like, exactly. Uh, trying to get when, this pr- 
cries in for my kid. Ugh. Exactly. Dealing she with looks crowds. like she's been dragging herself around right. Manhattan all day. And the last thing she wants to deal with is a Santa who's telling her kid a fantasy. So uh, it, it's no wonder she parlayed those two minutes into one of the great character actors careers of, of Hollywood. She was wonderful. I loved her. You know, she did this one, one when she she kind of played against part in Move Over, Darling. She played yeah. um, James Garner's mother. Which, this was yeah. a remake of My Favorite Wife, which was right. Cary Grant and Irene Dunn and Randall Scott. So Thelma was like the mother and, you know, she wasn't like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was just whatever. But she she was wonderful. And there's nothing I've seen her in that I didn't think she was authentic or great yeah. in, even if it's just a little bit of time. You always you always uh, say, hey, Thelma, oh, yeah. she's great. Well, you're always happy to see her. She's yes. one of those people yes. like Eve Arden when they come in like, oh, I'm so glad she's there. Yeah, just even if it's for <laughs> life, a scene. Life just got better. They just walked yeah. in. And, it, and she, she, I just love her. I love Thelma yeah. Ritter. And that little scene, and then it took off. Her career took yeah. off from that, which is amazing. And how old was she? Like Florence Bates. She was, she was already in her 40s. Yeah. Yeah, she was already in her 40s. And so was Florence um, Bates, who looked a lot older, I believe. But uh, Yeah, she well, and, yeah, well. people tend to be younger than they looked in those days, they did. generally. Yes, generally. definitely. Um, but yeah, Thelma's another uh, sort of quintessential example of what the book's about. Like, how can someone be in Miracle on 34th Street for two minutes and I can write a piece about it, you know, that, and that they could parlay it into a career. So, like, those real attention getters, um, like, when you, in that case, they didn't know who she was. I'm sure there were people like, who was that funny lady <laughs> in Macy's? <laughs> and she was, she did. She was the epitome of a mother you see. Yes. In Christmas, you know, bumping, yes. pushing into people and saying, like, okay, Santa Claus, come yeah. on, give me a break. So, yeah. next if we're going into the timeline, is Marion yeah. Lorne for yeah. Strangers on a Train. Yeah, and she's, what, it's four and a, this one's four and a half minutes, and she, of course, plays uh, Robert Walker's mother, a very rather charming sociopath murderer. Uh, and she's sort of a, they, he's kind of a mama's boy, and she just indulges every little whim of her obviously off-kilter son. Um, they're wealthy, and she's, uh, well, I think she was always, she always played eccentrics, because her wonderful comic persona, which of course we, most of us know on Bewitched Aunt in the Clara. 60s, yeah, is Anne Clara. Clara. And she's got that tiny little bit in The Graduate, which is also in the same vein. And she took over for um, Josephine Hull and Harvey on Broadway. So, mm -hmm. I mean, they're all in that same vein. So she kind of had a, a shtick, but it was her own thing. And it was very funny every single time. And it works beautifully in um, sort of the black comedy aspects of Strangers on a Train. She's got two scenes, one with Robert Walker, and we see what a strange relationship this is and how no matter how off the wall he, his comments are, like about blowing up the White House or whatever, she just, oh, Bruno, Giggles, you're such yeah. a dear. Yeah, whatever. Well, Giggles she was and also like doing filing his fingernails like I told you. Yeah, and they were too a, long. Yes. File better, Marion. <laughs> yeah, she's, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
so it's obviously a strange black comic sort of setup, and then she she's a painter as well, and has that wild painting of Saint Francis of Assisi. That's uh, <laughs> he uh, And then her other scene is with Ruth Roman when Ruth Roman comes to tell her uh, that her son is troubled and a murderer, and she's just not having any of it. Not in an unpleasant way, but just sort of oh my dear, you you can't believe everything he says. Oh. Yeah. And then of course inviting her to come back and see us again sometime kind of so she's just a lovely kind of grace note to the whole yeah. uh thriller totally aspect of the movie of totally oblivious things. totally comic relief yes but also part of that twisted thing that makes the killer you know has indulged the killer his whole life he hates his um, father obviously he hates his father kill. yes and yes, so he yes. thinks the mother instead of the picture of the saint was drawing a picture of his yes, father was his father yeah. exactly so go, no no but she is always good she's funny and i just yeah. love her i really do we're going to someone who I always liked. You guys might know her better from the Twilight Zone, from the famous oh, yeah. episode. Um, she's a dancer, yeah, burlesque dancer, and she hasn't like a, she's overtired, nervous breakdown kind of thing. And she starts, you know, she starts having this dream night after night. Room for one more, honey, and yeah, that's yeah. Barbara Nichols with that voice, with that everything. And so she's in the sweet smell of success. And I tell you, heart wrench hotel there for her. Yeah. Well, because uh, for the most part in movies, I mean, I always think of her as a funny lady because mm-hmm. she's in the vein of, you know, Vivian Blaine in Guys and Dolls or Judy Holiday right. or that Gene Hagen of that sort of tough talking New York dame, a real tomato, they might call her, you know, that type. And she's like that in pajama game she's like that in pal joey uh but when you see her in sweet smell of success it sort of looks like she's going to be that again because she's a cigarette girl in a club so it's that's the perfect persona the bleach blonde hair and the you know whatever uh but it's it's not a comic role it's a dramatic role and she's sort of used and abused by tony curtis and um it it's it's sad because she's not stupid. No. She's doing whatever she has to do to pay for. She has a son who's away at, at a, I think, a military academy or some kind of boarding school to keep him sort of like Bell Watling. She's got the son that's separate from her life. So he doesn't know how she makes her money um, and has a better shot at life. And so she obviously has some feeling for the Tony Curtis character too. And, uh, he's actually setting her up to sleep with somebody else when he says, meet me back at my place. And it's, it's, it's hard to watch in the, I mean, in a good way where she's so exposed, she's so vulnerable. We see the pain. Yes. We see the hopelessness. Which is not go- like you see with with her roles usually. Exactly. She's usually making us laugh with a wisecrack. Yeah. And she, she goes along with it. You just see her options are few. She doesn't have a very you know, optimistic outlook on where things are going for her. But it's a good, good part. And like I said, she plays it beautifully. And which is, I think it totals eight minutes. She's got the scene in the club with him and then the main scene at the, um, at the uh, apartment. And she's got the, again, confrontation with Tony Curtis of like, how dare you do this to me kind of thing. But uh, yeah, again, about, you know, seeing someone who feels there aren't that many options for me in the situation I'm in. 
And you totally just, feel I, for her, and you totally yeah. want to punch Tony Curtis in the face, which in so yeah. many of his movies, I just want to punch <laughs> him in the face. I'm not a big Tony fan. I have to be honest. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not really either, but he's he's very good in this one. Yes. At least we're not. At least he you're is. not supposed to like him in yeah, this one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So he was um, good in this one. Both of yeah, them. Yeah, he is. He is very good. And like I said, they're both people we associate more with comedy than drama generally. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, uh, the casting in this one is really good. And even Burt Lancaster, who obviously is known for drama, but not for this type of role. That Evil, kind mean of, guy. An erudite kind of yeah. uh, sophisticate. You know, we think of him more in physical terms than intellectual terms. Or like so a casting, military dude, a big military yeah, dude. Exactly. Like and, yeah. So I think the casting in this is actually, uh, for the, at least in those three parts, is rather remarkable. And um, like I said, it's a real tribute to Barbara Nichols that at that period where she was, like I said, a fun, tough talking dame, uh, she got this plum role. And um, sorry, she didn't get more like it in, um, you know, in, in films as good. Yeah. yeah, she was great. She did get into the Beverly Hillbillies as Chickadee Laverne. I love that. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jethro, Miss Chickadee. Yeah. It wow. was cute. Um, <laughs> Chickadee Laverne. Um, next, we're going to talk about someone. Um, there were a lot of old Hollywood people when it, it's still old Hollywood. Um, hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. And we're talking mm. about Mary Astor. Mary Astor at the end of her career. Right. Uh, four and a half minutes in, in Charlotte and two scenes. One with Olivia de Havilland on the street, and then one at her decaying plantation with uh, Cecil Kellaway. Um, I love Mary Astor. I mean, what an Me amazing too. career. Uh, talk about versatile. Uh, you know, she could be in that one little stretch in the early 40s. She's the femme fatale of the Maltese Falcon. She's the hilarious screwball millionaires in the Palm Beach story. And then she's that warm, grounded mother in Meet Me in St. Louis. And you think not only how could these three people be the same actress, but how could they all have been made within a few years of each other? They're like three completely different people who, you know, it, she's really... Um, She's one of those people that never disappoints. Whether no. you know, in you some always minute. believe her. You always, I, I like her very much. I also like her a lot in Doddsworth. I think oh, I love was, her in Doddsworth. Yeah, just so beautiful, beautiful and charming and intelligent, and yeah. you just want to root for her all the way. So I just really, and she was also good in Red Dust. I loved her in Red Dust. Oh yeah, she's sexy in that. Yeah, and, it's so uh, weird because you don't think of it, but she's, yeah. you know, and there's, of course, Jean Harlow who plays the outwardly yeah. sexy, and there's this, yeah. you know, fire down below mama. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Fire and ice. Watch, <laughs> yeah. watch the ice melt. Right. Um, and then she's great as the sort of prostitute an act of violence oh or the, That's the casino yeah. owner in Desert Fury. I mean, it I goes on that. and on. Oh, yeah. And as she gets older, she starts, like with Charlotte or even in something crummy like Return to Peyton Place, she like walks off with the movie. Yes. You know, it's like, I'm too good for these things, so I can't help it. I'm going to steal it. Now, in Hush, Hush, We Charlotte, you have all these big guns. You have Betty Davis and Libby de Havilland and Agnes Moorhead and Joseph Cotton. Um, but Victor it's Bruno, almost like, who's young. Yeah. Briefly, yes. Bruce Dern, uh, who gets it. Um, but Mary Astor, so again, sort of grounds it in a different way. They're all in this sort of uh, sort of high camp, 
kind of gothic melodrama with secrets, secrets, secrets. And the movie doesn't always play fair with how it deals with all of that. But then you have these two scenes with Mary Astor that are just so honest and direct. She basically tells off Olivia de Havilland on the street uh, in no uncertain terms without raising her voice. And then in the scene with Cecil Kellaway, she really opens up. She knows she's dying, doesn't have much time, and talks to him about how much easier it is to talk to a stranger and sort of tying up her life as she nears death. And again, it's, it's, it's almost unexpected in this movie, which, like I said, is often over the top. Sometimes in a wonderful way, I adore yeah. Agnes Moorhead in this. Me she's too. pretty outrageous, oh, but she's, she's also pretty fabulous. But then you have Betty Davis, who I think is kind of at her worst in this. I, yeah, sort of, I just She's not very good. No. I mean, I love Betty Davis, but, but she really went wrong in this one. A catered affair. Um, Boo. Yeah, that's you know, there's some, wrong some term, ones that but, didn't go, but um, yeah, but, Olivia, but when you, Olivia's very good in it. I like you know her what? in it. I think it shows, you know, where she's always Melanie. This, this. She's yeah. a tough broad, Olivia, in her yeah, real life. Good, so it's yeah. like that's Olivia. It's a good role yeah. for her to show that side of her because yes. right, she's very good. And as I said, um, um, I love Agnes, but. Uh, but there's this sort of other world going on in Mary Astor's two scenes where it's not the, like the mystery. It's not all that stuff that's uh, laid onto it, um, which is a lot of hooey in a lot of ways, I especially the stuff work. with Joseph Cotton that doesn't <laughs> add up, I don't think. Anyway, yeah. but those two scenes with Mary Astor are really like, wow, look at her. She doesn't even, she barely has to move. Her dignity. Look at her eyes. Yeah, her ravaged dignity, I think, as, as she refers to it. Um, yeah. And um, it's just beautiful. It's sort of like a beautiful little coda on an amazing, you know, she goes back to silent film, so it's like a four-decade career, and she still got it in 1964. How old do you think she was then? She would have been, actually, she's not even 60, but uh, she they was born in 06. So also, so she Betty was Davis. nearing 60. Yeah, nobody's, nobody's 60. Uh, nobody's 60. Uh, nobody. They're all just on the verge of 60, I guess. Not Olivia. She was younger. She looked good. Um, she looked good. And even, uh, I think, uh, maybe Agnes Moore. But I'm saying they're all roughly 60-ish. Um, and, of course, uh, Mary Astor's playing probably older or in the sense that she's dying. So they, right. they probably made her look a little worse. But um, you can still see what a beauty uh, she was. Um, anyway, yeah, <laughs> I do love her. I love her and I loved her part and just the dignity and telling off yeah. Olivia. I love that. And I love the guy yeah. who was so her guy who was so devoted yeah. to her and stayed yeah. with her. And, um, you know, she, it was really good. I, I think, and I love Cecil Kellaway in this as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he, what, I just think he kind of, I agree with you about Betty Davis. What do you think if Joan was in that movie? Do you think it would have been better or worse? I think it probably would have. I don't mean, I mean, I, I think it's, let me put it this way. I think it's better with um, Olivia um, more because the casting was more of a surprise and the fact that it's Southern, it played off the Melanie thing. So it added a kind of interesting color. We expect her to be one way and there's more going on. <laughs> Um, and I think with, it's a beast. I don't know. Yeah. I just, I, yeah, I think, I don't know. It might've been gone, 
campier with Joan versus Betty or that would have been built into it. Big and time. That, yeah. Big time. And, and Olivia treats it more as, as, as just another serious role, but, but one that we're not expecting to see her in. It was But like campy. I said, the beauty of it is that she enters as if she were Melanie Hamilton. So that's kind of a fun twist yeah, on it. Yeah, that sweet little girl, that sweetie pie. But then, you know, yeah. Olivia is... You know, look, she, the last thing, she took to feud and she went all the way to the Supreme Court. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is a broad. How old she lived to? 103? So, yeah, I think it was 103, but I think it was like 200 or what was it? I don't know. Yeah, it was old. She was old. <laughs> and yeah. tough till the bitter end. Yeah, so yeah. It, it's just amazing because I think so many people still remember her as Melanie or Sweet Pea or yeah, whatever. Yeah, But, yeah. Um, you know, I thought she was good in this because she was just so rotten. Rotten, rotten. Okay, our next one. I think this is also a film debut. We've done a few film debuts. Robert Duvall in To Kill a Mockingbird. It is a film debut. And uh, again, sort of like Bride of Frankenstein, where you don't actually show up until the very end, basically the last few scenes. And but people have been talking about you for two hours or you know whatever whatever the running times boo are. Boo Radley, uh, yeah, Boo Radley, the and, boogie boy, boogeyman, and someone has to live up to the hype just within the movie. And right. it's a it's a beautiful performance. Again, nothing actory about it, nothing self conscious. No. You just believe this is someone who's rarely outside, who um, has been watching the children and protecting the children, and um, has this moment with them and then disappears again back in the house. And it's really beautiful because it is so restrained. And he has a lovely, gentle quality with the two children. And again, this this sort of childlike quality. And um, it it lives up to what we imagine Boo Radley to be. And then there he is. And um, it's, again, it's a beautiful start. Now, in his case, unlike Thelma Ritter, it's not like that defined him. Boo Radley can't define your acting career your persona because he's so unusual right but and, and often people don't remember i can't tell you how many times i've talked about this movie this role when i'm talking about the book and people will say to me that was robert duvall <laughs> and i thought wow because he doesn't look like robert duvall and he's so young he looks but, like robert duvall to me <laughs> well i'm know. saying saying a lot of people uh Forgot the connection because uh, it's so far back, right. and they just think of that that character, not as the actor playing it. So that's a tribute to him. But uh, yeah, it's Robert Duvall. <laughs> yeah, and he was like to me, like I said before, you know, we invented there was a witch in the back of my friend's house, you know, and of course, yeah. she wasn't a witch. And then we go on to another witch to another house, yeah. but Boo was sort of like the. You know, this guy talked about this mysterious kind of dude, and you see what a kind, gentle soul he is and and what he did for the children and, you know, Gregory Peck getting the whole thing and and with with the little girl who I love. Yeah, Mary Badham, yeah. 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 Okay, so we have one who is, I think, our final one. I don't know if we'll get another one. Um, Larry Gates... In the heat of the night, and I don't know if I, I don't know how many films I know him from, but boy, does he stand out in this one. He's another one. Now he is in that category of 
people know the face and they might not be able to name one thing he's in, but I always think he's in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, yes. A, I believe he's the psychiatrist yes. in that. I always mm-hmm. think of that. And he's in Some Came Running. I always think of him in that. Um, but mostly I think of him from this one four minute scene, which right. is his only scene in, in the heat of the night. Cause it's such a, I mean, it's not at a climactic moment, but it's certainly a dramatic climax in the, in the whole story. Cause it's sort of the moment that was most talked about. And of course it's a murder mystery. And, uh, Sidney Poitier is the homicide detective, actually from the north but he's down there i believe visiting his mother and he just happens to be there so they seek his help but a black homicide detective in the south is an unusual thing and larry gates is this uh, very wealthy southern racist very powerful man and when they come to see him he and the sheriff uh, rod steiger he it takes him a while to realize that are you actually asking me questions like you're interrogating me? He cannot believe right. a black man is doing that to him. And once that sort of uh, dawns on him, he slaps Sidney Poitier in a how dare you moment. And the big moment is that Sidney Poitier immediately yes. slaps him right back without a breath. No hesitation. And that's what some have called the slap heard around the world because. You might expect uh, Larry Gates to slap him, but not uh, expect to see him slapped back. Do you think that's and the I, first time that happened, John? Something, yeah. I mean, that kind of scene. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, sure. Uh, the actual physical thing. Um, but the genius of Larry Gates, whether he was directed to do so or came up with it himself, is that he's stunned uh, and... Uh, what you would expect or what I would expect is him to run to the phone, call somebody or start screaming and yelling or start trashing everything in his greenhouse because he's so enraged but he's stunned the other people leave and he cries and you think that is kind of brilliant because a person like this, his his takeaway from what just happened is self-pity. Right. It's like the beginning of the end of my world and everything I've known. So what just happened to him, he took it personally. Like, I can't I don't deserve that. My world is beginning to crumble. It wasn't supposed to be this way. So no lesson learned at all. <laughs> it's just, and it's, it's sort of a window into a kind of a mindset. And I think that that's why the, the scene stays with me is that uh, it doesn't have the payoff you expect. It has a much more interesting payoff. It does. And it just, you know, the, the dignity of Sidney Poitier in yeah, that role, yeah. you know, and nobody, I didn't expect him to slap him back like that, but it was so quick. You you didn't yeah. go, oh, gee, he slapped him back like that right, right away. Yeah. So you barely yeah. had time. But it was a really good scene, and it's sort of like the crumbling south and, you know, things ain't like they used to be for him. But, yeah. you know, they weren't exactly peaches and cream at that time either. But they right. were changing. Mm. Times were changing. Do you mind if we do yeah. one more? Because I was going to put it on the list. Sure, go ahead. Uh, Beverly D'Angelo and Cold Mike's oh, daughter. Oh, great one. She was amazing. Well, this is 
like you know, like I was saying about Gladys George, but we've seen so many movies where someone is a movie star breaking down for two hours, and right. she did it in seven and a half minutes. Now, I like the movie Sweet Dreams, where Jessica Lange plays Patsy Cline for two hours. I did She's too. very good. However, Beverly D'Angelo does it in ten minutes because it's based. It's the L- L- Loretta Lynn story, coal miner's daughter, but she has this episode where they become friends until Patsy's death in the plane crash, and within ten minutes, uh, Beverly D'Angelo does everything you could ever want from someone playing Patsy Cline. She does her own singing beautifully. She's wonderful on stage as a performer. Backstage, you know, at home, as a friend. Pepper Pot. She's wonderful. well, she's so down to earth and yes. loving and supportive. She's she's like the big sister every gal would want, and that's what she is to Loretta Lynn. And like I said, her we feel the death the way Loretta Lynn feels it in the movie. Like, no, you cannot put out that beautiful light, she that loving, spark, warm light. Spark and plot. she's inc- yeah, she's yeah. incredible. And like I said, it's only ten minutes, and uh, such an impression. I and she was wonderful. I really yeah, do. So, and I wished that she. I, I did like Jessica Lange as well, but I yeah. really wish. But because Beverly D'Angelo was not in any way, shape, or form as big a star as Jessica Lange, they, sure, would, sure. they wouldn't have given her the role. But, um, yeah. man, she was good. Yeah, she's As was Sissy Spacek, she was wonderful. Yeah. But this woman in 10 minutes, she just has that pizzazz, that kindness, that everything that you yeah. see with this woman and the talent. And she sang her own songs, like you said. And it, uh, I just loved her. I thought she was wonderful. And yeah, I was that sad is- when she died. <laughs> Yeah, that's really one of the best of the musical biopics of movie history. And, of course, for Sissy Spacek, who's amazing in that she movie. She did her own she, singing as she well. She does her own she? singing as well. And uh, Tommy Lee Jones is great in yes. it, too. And all those scenes at the beginning of their life in, in um, is it uh, Tennessee or Kentucky, uh, in the sort of backwoods kind of feeling, the atmosphere in that movie is so beautiful and so authentic. And then, like I said, those two women, and when they're together in that brief time, those scenes are just, I mean, you can't help but smile through all so of them. So genuine. Just the, you can the camaraderie between the two. Yeah. It's so beautiful. And it ends with, when I get back, we're going to go shopping, you know, and that, and oh, it's a heartbreaker. It yeah. is, but what a role and Beverly D'Angelo, I always liked, and she hit it. She was on the money, touching, wonderful, and man, would I like her to be my BFF. Um, Yeah, right. Right? So she was so great. So we did, I think, about 11, and John has 89 more of these wonderful performances. Yeah. I do. It's uh, yeah. It's fine. I love talking about them. Obviously, I loved each and every one of them enough to spend enough time with them to write about them. Yes, and, uh, they're great. So, and I have to say, if I well, I'm actually not tooting my own horn. I'm tooting my publisher's own horn. Toot toot. It's a it's it's a hardcover with a hundred photos, many of them in color, and the book is so beautifully produced. I'm in awe. So, I'm, I'm. It just makes me so happy when I hear people are getting it that I know it's a beautiful book. So that makes me happy it's a beautiful book it's well researched uh you picked great people i mean i didn't you know i'm trying to eeny meeny miny mo on the people i yeah. want to talk about because sure. there's so many and you know you guys will love this book and again like i say a lot of john's books you can go back to and go oh yeah or they're just that kind of book they're not like okay i'm just going to read it once you'll go back to it and watch a performance and go, oh yeah or something like that. So I always enjoy John's books. They're always interesting to read. 
um, I laughed a lot about some of the things you wrote in here. And it oh, that's was good. Just a great book. And guess what? Thank you. We did what? 57 minutes. How's your hand? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing fine. Yeah. When you're talking about my book, I can keep going and going. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, we don't want to give the whole book away. It's a wonderful. No, 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 no. That was it's a so good great. tease. I thought, yeah, we had, I thought we'd show some really good people. We and, did. We did. Okay, so the name of Jean's book is There Are No Small Parts. 100 Outstanding Film Performances with Screen Time of 10 Minutes or Less. Maybe 10 Perfect. minutes, maybe 10 minutes, 2 seconds. Check it out. Get, get <laughs> hey, your, don't start trouble. <laughs> get your stopwatch out, peeps. Yes, yes. <laughs> and let us know. Anyway, it's a yeah. wonderful book. And, John, I love having you on, as always. It's always fun. Yes. Always fun. And you come on again because I have ideas for us about certain things we can talk about. So okay. I'll let you you know, once you're finished with your promotion with the book and all that, we can do it. Great. Thank you. Thank you, John. And thank you, everyone. And he has, I will link all this up. He has, you can go to his author page on Amazon and you can buy this book, I guess, anywhere that books are sold. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. So I highly recommend. And thank you so much, John. And thank you so much for listening, everybody. Be careful of your heads. <laughs> right? Bye, John. Bye, Bye. everybody.